Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Joining us today is gaming pioneer Alex Seropian, a builder at heart who is passionate about building companies, creating software, and designing industry-changing games. As an entrepreneur, he's founded four successful companies, Bungie, Wide Load, Industrial Toys, and Gunslinger Studios. Alex's gaming background is exceptional, having created iconic games like Halo that have been tremendously successful and impactful for the whole industry. As an executive manager at Disney and Microsoft, he learned patience and the importance of persistence, which he applies to his work as an entrepreneur. Apart from entrepreneurial ventures, Alex is involved in philanthropy and serves on the board of the Tumo Center in Armenia. He invests in a handful of startups and serves as an advisor and mentor to numerous entrepreneurs. Alex's desire to teach as much as he learns inspires him to help others build their dreams using the lessons he's learned along the way. So that is my best intro I can provide to you, Alex. How are you doing? <laughs> Thank you, Jason. We do like to kick off and ask every guest what are you playing right now? Let's see. This week, I am playing a game called Octagon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever played it, but it's a game made by All Yes Good, George Fan Design. George Fan is designer of Plants vs. Zombies, one of my favorite games of all time. Recently, I had a chance to reconnect with him personally, so I've been playing his game. It's pretty good. It's You know, it kind of flew under the radar a little bit, but if you like Plants vs. Zombies and that kind of tower defense, it's in that vein but with a very different take. All right, I have not played it yet, but I, and I'm going to ask my team after this if anyone has, and if they haven't, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be the, the guinea pig. I love it. Um, well, you know, obviously you have a very decorated career in the gaming industry, and obviously want to go back to just kind of how it all started. Tell us about your early years and kind of how you first became interested in and eventually determined that you wanted to dedicate your career to gaming. Well, you know, I think... My first exposure to video games was the Atari 2600. The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set. But like my, my dad, my dad was many things. One of the things that he was was frugal. So when the Atari 2600 came out, he got the Sears Telegames. So it was kind of like the, the not cool version. I would spend my allowance money on Atari carts. So that was my first like kind of deep dive into games. And then when I was in high school, when the Mac came out, and that's that's the computer my dad brought home. I'm pointing at a, a an original Mac. It's a 128K Mac. And there was this game on there called Beyond Dark Castle. Do you ever play that? Beyond Dark Castle? I have, actually. I have played that. Yeah. That was my the first time I played a game that had like enough production value to convey like a sense of humor and a story and and kind of a heart it had a heart and soul, you know. It was probably then that I thought, "Hey, 
I'm going to try doing that. And that's when I started teaching myself how to code. As a former engineer myself, what was the first language you learned how to express yourself in code? I always find that interesting because everyone's journey and entry point <laughs> to this world is different. The first code I ever wrote was basic, you know, and that was our middle school had a Commodore. They had a room with like probably like eight Commodore pets in them. I think it was all in one, but it had a monitor on top of a base and a built-in keyboard. And the monitor was like either green or yellow, you know, one, one color. It was color, one color, green or yellow. Um, and they had like the computers in this room, they had like a little sticky note on the side, which said how much RAM was in there. Like they were all 8K, except one had 16K. So we, what were we doing with 16K RAM? Nothing, but we would all run to get that one because it was 16K. But on those machines, like you could, <laughs> there was a like cassette tapes, you know, and you could like play games and you could actually look at the code and it was basic. So that was my, my first sort of exploration in the code was looking at the code for these games. When I had this Mac in high school and I was like, well, maybe I should try and make something. It was on Pascal. I also think that's one of the cooler names for coding languages for whatever it's worth. I don't know why. Pascal's always been a cooler one. I think some of the, the more recent ones, people have gotten lazy with the namings of these different languages. <laughs> well, you know, we could dive into that, but you know, the whole point of this podcast is gaming, not development. So I have to, I have to steer us back, but you know, obviously you, you, you know, in college you met, you know, one of your co-founders eventually for Bungie, which, um, you know, obviously is the iconic studio behind Halo, which, by the way, we have a wall of Halo helmets right behind me. I debated <laughs> if I should do this podcast with you wearing that helmet, but I, f I figured it might be hard to breathe. <laughs> Before we get into the history behind, you know, the biggest franchises in gaming or one of them, which is iconic to me as a gamer, too, and to many, probably those who listen as well. Can you share us the story of, like, why did you decide, decide to launch Bungie? What made you kind of want to make that jump? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things were going on at that time, you know, and that was uh, 1991, right when I was getting out of college. I had grown up in a family that had, I would say, an entrepreneurial spirit. My dad was a, a doctor by trade, but his real love was building things. So the house that we bought was a fixer-upper. All my formative years, the summers were spent rebuilding this house. My mother was an artist. So I loved the idea of building, working for myself, making something from nothing. And part of what I really liked about coding was that you could, you could write something. It was writing, but the writing had this magical creative ability to make a machine do a thing. And so I'd, I'd always wanted to channel that energy into starting a, a business. At the same time, in 91, a lot of interesting things were happening in, in gaming. The like game industry, it was like you, you couldn't really put the word industry at the end of it. You know, there were people who were making video games, you know, and some of the people were selling them, you know, and shareware was, was happening. You know, Castle Wolfenstein had come out. There was a company on the Mac. I had a Mac. That was a blessing and a curse, right? I had a Mac, which meant there was a there was a market of people that nobody was making games for. Hey, that's an opportunity. I was also a market of people that nobody was making games for. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't really known as a platform on which to buy games. But there was this company, Inline Design, that was run by this guy, Daryl Peck. Big inspiration for me. I got to find him and tell him that. But I played all their games, and they built a brand, they built a, a product line, and I thought, well, this is a thing that could be done. And that was sort of the, the impetus behind starting Bungie my senior year of college was, I'm going to write a game because I like to program and I like to build things, 
and I'm going to try and do what these other guys did. And I'm going to like package it up and try to find a way to sell it. And that's kind of how it started. I, and, and there was other kinds of things. There was a couple models to follow, but not much. And getting out of college with the degree that I had, like I was, I was interviewing for jobs at places like Arthur Anderson. I ended up having to make a real choice as to what, you know, was I going to go get a job or was I going to try and start, start this thing? And, and I, you know, this is what I tell folks coming up now when they're trying to figure out what to do. I usually say, well, like, you know, if you're young, you probably don't, you don't have perfect knowledge and you don't have a lot of experience. You really got to trust what you're passionate about because that's what's going to drive you to kind of persist, you know, and persistence is really critical to get it to, to breaking through to success. Without really knowing that, that's what I did. I just listened to what my my heart told me I wanted to do, even if it wasn't the thing that I probably should do. You know, I asked my dad the same question. He's like, oh, you got a job offer for that much? Take the job. <laughs> How did that conversation go in your household? Yeah, I mean, it was literally, it was a conversation I remember it very vividly sitting on the couch in the living room t- t- asking my dad for his advice. It was like, well, you could you could take this job, you can get some experience, you could earn a little money, and then take what you've learned and then go start your business. I also think in the back of his head, pretty sure he was thinking two steps ahead of me, realizing, eh, you know, whatever I tell my young son getting out of college will probably have the polarizing impact of pushing him in the opposite direction. <laughs> so I give him credit. I give him credit for inspiring me to do to do the thing that, that I wanted to do and the thing that was maybe not expected, but it was also the thing that um, I was looking for. So that's kind of how it went down. I love that. You know, obviously, in, you know, in retrospect, it's, it's, it's a funny question to ask now, but obviously you left college, you wanted to go launch this business, I'm assuming along the way you needed to raise a little money to support yourself and your team as you guys endeavored to produce some content. What was fundraising like in the 90s for a game studio? <laughs> where where did you go? What were the sources you were trying to tap? Yeah. Well, I mean, for better or worse, I knew nothing. There wasn't much to find out, but I knew, I literally knew nothing. I did raise enough money to pay for hard costs. So my girlfriend, now my wife, was paying the rent, which which gave me the ability to, to to sort of work without income. You know, at first it was myself and, you know, got some help from from my brother and some friends to do some production work. And then uh, once once I met Jason, you know, we then it was the two of us and some of our friends, but we weren't really spending money on development. The, the money that I did raise went into packaging and the, the hard hard costs associated with getting distribution. And we didn't raise much. We raised about $10,000. And that was that was all a friends and family. It, you know, it, it, it was a friends and family round. You know, we didn't we didn't have the vocabulary to call it that, you know, then. But that's what it was. And that that was all that was all based off of a video I made, you know, pre YouTube, a VHS tape of me wearing a tie saying, hey, I'm Alex Ropey and I'm going to make a video game. <laughs> I think we're going to have to dig this up. I don't know if this is a publicly distributed video, but I think it would go viral today, Alex, if we wanted to release it. Well, obviously, you know, you started in 1991 and then, you know, not to fast forward too far forward, but in, you know, nine years later, you sold Bungie to Microsoft in 2000. Tell us, how did you guys get there? What was the 
you know, obviously going from the video of you pitching, you know, your to the friends and family with a tie on saying, I'm going to build a video game to building a, you know, Halo, which then became kind of the iconic piece of IP for the launch of what is still now one of the dominant console players. Tell us about that journey, kind of maybe the highs, the lows, and what ended up making you want to pursue an acquisition with Microsoft. Sure. Well, I mean, I could tell you it was not a straight line. Um, <laughs> like most interesting journeys, there were lots of twists and turns, but we very much started small and, and, and bootstrapped. Like I was saying, I, I wrote the first game. Jason had written the second game. Those two games, Operation Desert Storm and Minotaur, were good, fun games. But, you know, it, it, we, we didn't have to, a lot of distribution. They basically broke even. And the third game was like, all right, we're going to give this one more go. But, uh, you know, we'd been at it for maybe a year and a half, two years, and thinking, mm, how long do we try doing this before we give up and go actually get a job? And Pathways was uh, Pathways actually turned out to be pretty successful for us. It was the first 3D game that we had done. It was ki- kind of similar in visual style to Wolfenstein. Orthogonal walls, you know, no up and down, textured sprite characters. Uh, but it was pretty immersive for the time. 3D, it had a story to it, which um, which Jason had written, which was pretty comp- fun and compelling. It was an adventure game. Uh, it had a vibe. And I I very much do remember being in my basement apartment, Bungie HQ. I was thinking I was on an exercise bike, literally. I was like getting some exercise in on the bike. And the fax machine, hey, we had a fax machine, was like on the desk right next to me. And it rang. And I think I had just gotten, I had just convinced somebody, uh, a distributor, to carry the game, a new distributor. And I didn't really think too much of it. Like I'd heard, like it was one of those distributors where somebody said to me, you should call these guys. They carry everything. They'll they'll probably pick up the game. And they, they picked it up and they sent over their first order. And their first order was, it was, I think it was like a $100,000 order or something. It like blew me away. It was like, you know, we were just kind of scraping by. And I'm like on my exercise bike and I'm looking down. And I'm like, oh, there's a fax. What? I got off my bike. <laughs> and I looked at the, I looked at the fax machine. And I was like, woohoo. <laughs> From that point on, it was like, okay, this could be a real business now. Like we actually hire somebody. We shortly then got an office on the south, south near south side of Chicago and Pilsen. Really cool space and like this old, it used to be like this uh, a school building that was turned into uh, to office space. Like had no air conditioning. It was like unworkable in the in the summer, but had big airy ceilings and, and all that stuff. And we started hiring some folks and Pathways was doing pretty well. And then we started working on Marathon and the Marathon was kind of a breakout for us. That game built on the 3D engine that we had for Pathways. It introduced up and down. It was very much more like the kind of the FPS action style that Doom was successful with. And it was that same time frame too. Doom was coming out on the PC and then we were coming out on the Mac. And once again, this game had a story which kind of set it set it apart. So from the beginning, Marathon sort of marked the beginning of, of us finding our our place, our, you know, FPS with story, uh, story narrative really was kind of a hallmark of all the games that we had done. And that game took off. You know, we did three versions of that game on the Mac. We did a PC version of that game for the first time. We expanded our distribution. Distribution was always a challenge to get. And 
back, you know, now everything is digital and online, but back in the 90s, everything was retail. So, you know, a big capital outlay to produce the, and we were self-publishing, you know, so it was, so we were doing the capital outlay for, for the product build and, you know, we, we would have to build inventory, we'd sell it into distribution, everything was basically, they wouldn't call it consignment, but they had return rights, you know, so, so it was basically consignment, if it didn't sell, it was coming back, and that business was really kind of sketch, you know. There was like to get an end cap on Walmart, you gotta, you know, you gotta pay, you gotta pay some stuff, you know, to get to get that spot. And that's really what moved the units. So we, you know, we grew that part of the business too, that publishing distribution part of the business. And and then we started a couple more teams. So once once Marathon was successful enough for us to keep scaling, we added two more teams. We had a team in California working on a game called Oni. And we had a second team in Chicago. We started working on Myth. Myth came out in 97, and Oni was in development. Myth was pretty successful. It was our first cross-platform release, Mac and PC at the same time. And it, and shortly after that, with, with the third team that we added, that was basically the team that Jason spun, like started up this little team with a few other folks. Marcus was, was in there. Rob McLeese was in there. There was a few other folks. That was the beginning of, of Halo. And that was sort of in the 98 timeframe. Uh, and, and so we had Oni, Halo, and Myth 2 going. And that's when we started looking for opportunities to fuel that growth. Uh, and that's when we did, um, we did a strategic deal with um, Take-Two. So they got publishing rights or distribution rights. It, was, it, was, it wasn't the marketing, it was just distribution rights as well as they did an equity investment. And that funded our expansion for those three studios. And then when Myth 2 came out, I don't know if you know this story, but when Myth 2 came out, we had, uh, we had a product recall. It was the first time we ever had a, a kind of so- something like that happen where the uninstaller for that game was written in such a way that if you installed that game to the root of your C drive, and then later uninstalled it, it would erase the directory in which it was installed. So if you installed it to the root of your C drive, it would just erase your whole hard drive. And we discovered that right as the boxes were on their way to retail in the trucks. And that was probably the toughest decision out of that entire time that I've ever had to make. Like, what do we do? Because like one of our partners had just run into this bug and they're like, oh, this, this thing happened and we sort of figured it out. It's like, oh my gosh, if if this any of our players do this, they're, they're gonna race their hard drive. Ultimately, yeah, we made the decision to basically stop the trucks, bring everything back, update the software, because this was, you know, again, pre-internet, so you could we couldn't just patch it, you know? And that was very, very that was expensive. It wasn't just the cost of reprinting the discs and repackaging. It was, you know, we had lined up all those expensive end caps. All that money just, it's like they didn't give back, you know? It was like, oh, you're not going to be on the end cap? Okay. Thanks for the 50 grand, though. <laughs> Have a nice day. You know, that's on you, not on us. So uh, it was it was very expensive. And it w- that was also right around the same time when we were just starting to, uh, to show off Halo. The first showing, that public showing, we did some showing of Halo, like at an E3 behind closed doors. And then we did this public showing at uh, during a Steve Jobs keynote. The interest there was was super high. 
Could you tell us a little bit more about that keynote? I think that's something you and I have chatted a little bit about before, but that was actually news to me, kind of the the importance of Halo to what would be kind of Mac, you know, Mac gaming. And that was kind of interesting to me. So I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit more about that keynote story. Sure. I mean, that was a really big deal for us. And I think it was the first, I don't know if it was the first time that Apple had put a game in, in their keynote. I mean, games are definitely part of the iOS ecosystem, but back in the Mac days, games were not were never a focus of, of Apple's in terms of software. We had a good friend of mine, Peter Tamty, had come come to join the company as our head of publishing. And Pete, I've kn- I had known Peter for a long time. He had, he had run a Mac uh, game development company and publisher for a while. The job right before he came to join us was head of consumer marketing for Apple. So he worked for Steve, for Steve Jobs. Um, he was at Apple. He he knew he knew that team, that ecosystem. And as we were putting together Halo and showing it to, to early folks, we showed it to Apple, let them know what we were doing. And and we were by that point we were pretty pretty close with the sort of like the developer relations team and the you know the, the technical team had helped us optim- do optimizations to get the game in front of Steve Jobs to see it and he liked it enough to 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 ask if we would be part of the the keynote i mean we treated it like putting on a show like we did a a scripted it looked like a video but it was running in software so it was like the game it was the game running it had the that iconic music we had the, we had a whole catastrophic thing where the the CD broke you know on the way to we had the overnight extra CDs and but it 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 made a big impression people really liked it and it generated a lot of interest for the game and that stage even though it was a max stage was a pretty big stage with having Steve Jobs basically announce it to the world so it was it was like a viral moment for us i would say you know Yeah, that's probably a moment you'll never forget in your career. Really quick, tell me about your kind of process of negotiating with Microsoft, right? Obviously, Microsoft ended up, you know, bringing Bungie in-house. What was that like for you? You had, you know, if you're just kind of progressing, you had done a, you know, 10K family and friends round uh, with your video. You had then done some smaller kind of distribution deals. Then you did a take-two deal, which was probably quite formative for you when it came to, to publishing and, and distribution. And then eventually you you actually got you know leveled all the way up to doing an acquisition deal with Microsoft. Tell me about that process for you and kind of how you navigated it. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the important parts of our culture at Bungie was being independent. We were independent on all axes of the business. So it wasn't just the product development. It was our brand. It was our community. It was the marketing, the distribution. Every, we controlled as much as we could control because we wanted to have a direct connection to our players. We wanted them to get to know us, to trust us, to give us ideas, to have a two-way conversation. So we had, uh, you know, Microsoft obviously wasn't the, maybe not obviously or whatever, it wasn't the first conversation that we had had about being acquired. But in all the other conversations, it was they, they, they never progressed too far because of how important that voice, that internal voice was for us. It was really part of our, our ethos. But our conversation with Microsoft began a little differently than some of these other conversations. We actually got invited to go see the prototype of the Xbox. And in that early, that early demo, it wasn't doing much. It was like a graphics demo. But our takeaway was that, hey, this is... Basically, it's a console, but it's, you know, it's made out of PC parts, 
you know, to get our our game as a PC game to get it to run on this device, it's probably ma- would be made to run it. You know, it's like this is achie- would be achievable for us. So the first conversation we had with them was really like, hey, we think what you're doing is kind of cool. Can we be a part of it? Can we get our game on there? And you know, that was a call to Ed Freeze. Ed Freeze's reaction was, oh, well, this is an interesting conversation. We would love to talk about you guys being on the platform. And we both quickly realized that each of us potentially could be filling the needs of the other. Like we had always, you know, coming from the Mac and then slowly getting over to the PC, we were always longing to be on a bigger stage. We were always bootstrapped and, and all, you know, even though we had done that deal with with Take Two, we were still self-publishing. So we were always looking for how can we scale and, and, and fund our uh, ability to reach a, a big mass audience, keep up with the growth of, of just the gaming industry in general. And Microsoft was launching a new console and like they had exceptionally bright people around the table, but many of them had very limited experience in games. So they were, you know, they were very much looking for teams that had like a track record. They were looking for games that could help launch this new platform. And when it, when it came down to a conversation of, Hey, there's an opportunity for us to be the, the launch title on the biggest platform that's coming in games at Microsoft, one of the biggest companies in the world has already committed a $500 million marketing budget. It was really a step change. It was an opportunity for a step change. And ultimately, we we figured out a way to to keep control over the things that we we really wanted to keep control over, and to have access to that big stage. And that was the, the motivation for for doing that deal, you know. And the mechanics of the negotiation were fairly standard, I would I would guess. But uh, the important parts were really the how could we as a team maintain our our culture, how it maintain uh, like the, our way of doing things. And Microsoft had no interest in changing that. In fact, they, they had done a couple of acquisitions before we had joined and they, they had made some changes and kind of regretted it. And they were like, well, we don't want to do that again. We just like, you tell us what you need. We'll, we'll, we'll set it up. We were like, I think we were the first people at the company to operate in an open, in an open work environment. You know, we had, our studio was, an open environment where everybody had kind of line of sight with each other, can have spontaneous creative conversations. Microsoft had a culture of every engineer in their own office with a door that can close. And they didn't really put up much resistance to the idea of like, hey, let us build out our own studio. And and, and we did it the way that we wanted. So those were all important things for us. That makes, that makes sense. And you were there for, you know, four years before eventually you decided that you were going to go launch Wide Load Studios, which you know, eventually you would sell to Disney. About I think five years after founding it, what was the you know what was the sort of the the decision process for you to to leave Bungie? What what kind of led you to that decision? That you know in two thousand four that was the right time. Which, if I'm not mistaken, was right around when Halo Two was coming out. What led you to sort of leave? I think it was probably the year before that. But I, you know I was. Halo had come out, it had been a very big success. The studio was doing very well. My wife and I were starting a family. We're Chicago people. And this was, you know, this was not a work from anywhere decade <laughs> like it is now. You know, honestly, I kind of I I kind of wanted to take a break as well. So that that was really we made a choice to move back to Chicago and start a family, which uh was sort of the big thing. Starting Wide Load though was very much inspired, I guess, by my experience at 
at Microsoft because being at Microsoft was like my first, the first time I had been, you know, we had our studio, we we're making this game, but, you know, I was also on the team that was helping to launch the Xbox and, and there was a lot of, a lot of my peers were also making games. I got a lot of exposure to uh, many projects. So I got to see from the publisher's point of view. It was also the platform holder, but really like the process and machinations of what goes through the mind and uh, and, and decision-making of a publisher was kind of new to me. And I, I saw a lot of problems, like having seen game-making from both the development side and then also from the, from the publisher slash funding side, there are a lot of places where those two things don't mesh <laughs> well. A lot of decisions that sometimes have to get made that if things were set up differently could have could have had a different outcome. So I, you know, a lot of that I I I looked at and I I could empathize with the developers, I could empathize with the publisher. Hey, what if what if there was a way to do this that was more capital efficient, that was more risk tolerant, that could harness really like the the talent of a few that that would really have the biggest impact on the quality and and success of a title, but be able to scale up and down quickly and efficiently. Maybe more like the like a, the model that you know Hollywood production works under. Our industry didn't wasn't really set up that way, but that that really was the thesis behind starting Wide Load was small core team. We will partner with publishers for funding, but we'll be able to scale up and we'll be able to scale down. So we're not impacted by the drought that comes between titles or having to go into that formative period where a small group is is doing the heavy lifted design for the next project. And that's how we started that business. And it worked very well throughout the life of that studio independently up through doing a deal with Disney after which it was an internal studio. You know, a lot of people look at Disney as sort of the unofficial governors of, you know, all of entertainment. You know, they set the standards, they wield a lot of influence, they sort of run that town would be the way I would describe it. What was it like for you moving from technology giant running that sphere to being an entertainment giant running from Microsoft to Disney? What was what was it like for you working within that organization and, you know, what did you glean from that? Yeah, fascinating. I really love my time at Disney. It's an amazing company. I mean, there's so much excellence and so much history everywhere you look. You you can look at any direction. Oh, Pixar's over there making movies, and you go visit them, and you're like blown away. It's like, oh my gosh, I, now I know why they're so successful. They they have a very unique way of doing things, and and they're amazing. And then you know you go down to the parks and you go behind the scenes and you see how they think about imaginary thinks about building these experiences, and you're like, oh, blown. My mind's blown again. It's like oh my gosh, they have, nobody else does anything like this. And it's so, and the output is so fantastic. And everywhere you look, you know, you get examples like that, which was very, contrast that to my experience at Microsoft. Microsoft's also a, an amazing company. From a creative lens like that, it's different. You know, you, you're not finding the creative inspiration that you that you find at a Disney under literally under every freaking rock, you know? But that said, you know, it was like, they're very different approaches to business. Microsoft at the time I was there was very much felt like a startup. You know, they were launching this new device, this new thing. There was less of an expectation that it was going to be profitable in the near term. Um, so it was all about learning, figuring things out, trying to make something that was cool, getting it, out, getting it out in the market and getting a foothold. Whereas Disney was a lot 
more of a mature company, a, a lot of the projects, uh, you know, presentation number one was let's look at the financials, you know, how, like, how does this make sense? Which is just a very, you know, I don't hardly ever looked at a P&L at Microsoft, you know, it, the rare times I was in a, in a meeting with finance was after Halo came out and we were looking at how, how much above plan it was and, and giggling, you know, it's like, but at Disney, like a lot of decisions were made, you know, off the P&L, which is just, um, it's just a slightly different culture. But uh, I remember my first day, my first day there, I walk in, literally I walk in my very first day and it was the day they announced the Marvel acquisition. The most recent company you founded, Industrial Toys, in 2012, you also eventually sold to EA. And one thing I just kind of want to highlight for those listening, if you're tracking the story, Alex, which is, which, which is fascinating to me, is you've sold a company to Microsoft, You've sold a company to Disney, and you've sold a company to EA, and all three of those companies are very, very different. And it takes a lot of an operator to be able to sell one company, let alone three. You know, for this third one, tell us a little bit about the motivation to to start yet again another company, because, you know, a lot of people (laughs) tap out after one, more people tap out after two. I rarely hear of three. And so... I would love to hear kind of maybe where your head was at when you watched the third one and and how that internal conversation probably went in your household of, you know, I'm launching yet again another company. I'd love to hear that story. It's a good question, Jason. And back in, I guess, around 2012, I suppose, Disney was looking at the, these emerging digital platforms that had free-to-play business models. So uh, Facebook was was one, and iOS was another. The App Store had, was, was just kind of came out. Games were kind of, at that point, it was pre-Supercell. It was kind of a mix, mostly premium games, but there were a lot of titles that were making a lot of money and had a really long tail in Korea and Asia that were free-to-play. So... So Disney was looking at that. They bought Playdom, uh, which was one of the early successes on on Facebook. Iger had joined the board of of Apple. So the App Store and this whole kind of you know business model started to become a priority. So I became a student of free to play. I became a student of mobile. I also became a customer, a player. You know, I was playing games on my my phone and my iPad. And you know, there a lot of them were fun and interesting, but I I quickly had the realization that nobody was making anything for me. Sounds like either for me or for you, Jason. You know, it's like back then it was cut the rope, you know, and Angry Birds. And Disney sort of was at a point in time where they had placed some bets. Some of them came out good. Some didn't. They had stood interactive up as as like a as a fourth or a fifth. Uh, vertical in in their business, and they they were evolving, and they're kind of evolving away from that back to to a licensing model. So, you know, the the combination of those two things of sort of Disney intentionally lowering their risk profile and deinvesting in in games, and looking at what was happening in in mobile with free to play, the 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 growth of that platform, I saw a real need, an opportunity to build the kinds of games that I knew, the kinds of games that I liked for an audience that I was very familiar with on a brand new platform that was going to be global. At the time, we were looking at it like, oh, it's very accessible. You could make a game with 10 people. And that's how we got started. And that was in 2013, I think, 2012, 2013. 
you teed us up so well for the next question, which is, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're working on today. Obviously, <laughs> you know, you, you are a man that does not sit still for long. So we'd love to hear any initiatives or what is next in your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have I have just watched you know, and lived a gen, like a, a whole platform's, gen, you know, maturation, a whole generation of maturing with mobile. I've been on that platform in that business for, for 10 years, which in our industry is, that could be a whole, a whole career. Mobile still has a lot of opportunity to it, but it's also, it has changed a lot and it has gotten a lot more competitive and a lot more difficult to operate in. I'm that kind of person too, who's like, when it, whenever somebody asks me, is this a good is this a good time to start a company or is this a good time to to be in games? I'm, my answer is almost always this is the best time. Partly it's because I'm an optimist, and now is always the best time. But there is so much going on right now between technology and especially in games. There are new platforms, new technologies, new. Uh, new ways to reach customers, new ways to entertain, and new ways to create value, for not just for companies, but also for players. So it is, a, I think, a really interesting time. I, I'm kind of investing my energies in two things right now. One is I'm, I've, I've created a platform with a new podcast for game makers to kind of tell their own stories. And the other is I'm, I am looking at, there are a couple of new platforms that are coming and looking at opportunities to to help define the next generation of games on those on those platforms. So a little early to get any more specific publicly, but that's very exciting to me. You know, I definitely was not early or first uh, on the App Store, but there was a lot at the, on those early days. There was a lot of experimentation that went on on a lot of learning, which equates to a lot of a lot of building, which is. Um, which is what I which what I have a real big interest in. So those are the things that I'm occupying my time with today. Yes, and everyone listening here should definitely go listen to Alex's podcast as he gets to talk to some great other game makers as well. I'm very excited about that podcast as a whole. I think the content that is coming about those who create this wonderful industry is is leveling up this year. So very excited about that across the board. Those who are listening, there's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs and operators. You know, what advice would you give to someone, you know, as somebody who has, you know, successfully launched and exited three companies and is, is cooking up on a fourth? What advice would you give an aspiring entrepreneur? What would you tell that person? Well, I guess a couple of things. A lesson that I learned early on was really about, I don't know how to say it any more like cleverly than being persistent, but very rarely is a path between your start and your goal straight. It very rarely goes as planned, but a lot of navigating those paths is is problem solving, like live in place problem solving. Like what are we going to do about X? And that can express itself from big questions to, oh, this platform we were betting on isn't working. You know, what do we do with the thing that we made? To even small things like, I really want to get this person on my team and I can't afford them or whatever. You know, how do I, how do I figure that out? That's one thing is, is, is be persistent, figure out how to, how to keep carrying on. The other thing is there are a lot of things that you can kind of get more of, you know, like you can, you can't always raise more money, but money is a thing that you can, you can kind of, you can raise more money, you know, if, if you need to. You could, you can kind of scale the number of people you have working on something. You could build more content for something if you need it. But the one thing you can't ever get any more of is time. That is our the non-fungible asset in 
the universe so far. So that's the thing that I, I always say time has the biggest premium and is the most valuable thing. And if you can buy time, it's always worth it. It's always worth it. If you could, if you can make a choice that makes something happen quicker, you will get to that next waypoint on your journey sooner, which gives you a higher chance of being successful. So be persistent and really value your time. Well, how can people follow you, Alex, and what you're up to next and reach out to you if of interest? What's the best channel for them to reach you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm Steak Bacon on Twitter. And I'm name. on Discord. You know, if, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna come hang out on Discord, you can you can find us at, at the fourthcurtain.com. There's a link to our, our Discord over there. And we're on there all the time. Love to love to chat. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. And I really appreciate you being on on the podcast and sharing sharing with us a lot about your journey and lessons learned along the way. And truly, thank you for all you've done for the gaming industry. Um, as a direct beneficiary of it, it's exciting to talk to someone who's created something <laughs> I've spent so much time in. So thank you, Alex, and appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Alex, for the fantastic conversation. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on another episode of the Game Changers podcast. Once again, special thanks to our guest, Alex Seropian. It was great to chat with someone who has made such a monumental impact on the gaming industry and to hear how Alex built Bungie, the studio behind the iconic Halo series, and how Alex also navigated as an operator selling to three different major companies, Microsoft, Disney, and EA. If you also like reading up on deep dives on the gaming industry, sign up for our weekly newsletter at convoy.vc. Have a great week.